that. Well, last Sunday morning, if you were here with us, we finished our study through the book of 2 Corinthians together, uh, and it is our practice on Wednesday nights, uh, we just go consistently straight consecutively through the Old Testament. We started back in Genesis. We're all the way up to Psalm 119 now on Wednesday evening. Sunday mornings, uh, we typically study a New Testament book, but uh, I I like to pray and just ask the Lord um, what book he would have us to study next and to kind of just balance where we're at in the New Testament. Of course, different themes and truths. And so I I like to kind of pray and ask the Lord where he wants us to be as a congregation next when we're studying a new New Testament book on Sunday mornings. It's getting easier now because we're done about 20 or 21 of the 27 books, so I don't have to pray as long over it. Uh, It becomes a little bit more easy to slim that down. But 1 John, if you'll turn there in your Bibles, is just where I kept sensing my heart was being drawn back to. 1 John chapter 1, and this morning we'll sort of do an introduction as well as look at the first four verses together of 1 John so if you are turned there in your Bibles with me, 1 John chapter 1, why don't we stand together as we do out of respect for God's word as I read this morning's scripture. 1 John 1, beginning in verse 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And Father, we just ask that you would continue to help us now to worship in spirit and truth as we've prayed and sang and fellowshiped. Lord, help us now by the power and ministry of your Holy Spirit to be able to receive and to have an ear to hear what your spirit would say to this part of your church in this particular section of your word, particularly as we start a new book, Lord, may you just use the book of 1 John to communicate things to us individually and collectively that we need to hear. May it be a word in season for us, Lord, and may it speak now by your spirit that which we need to hear this day. And we ask together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it is fair to say that despite a person's current state that they may be in or maybe the condition in their life right now, that whatever you are going through, it is absolutely accurate to say that your deepest need is an experience with God. Whether you are someone in the midst of the conflict and war zone that is happening over in Ukraine, whether you are someone who life just seems to kind of be as it normally is and not that unusual, whether you're in the midst of a tragedy or maybe recently have gone through a real difficult time or maybe recently you've been discouraging with, uh, discouraged with some bad news or some hard things that are going on, whatever your situation, doesn't matter what the circumstances, it is accurate to say still universally in all those things that the deepest need of every human being is to have an experience with God. Indeed, that is the answer to whatever we are facing or going through. I know that because God's word says so in many different ways. Two ways, and I always say it's kind of like this beautiful two-sided coin that we can keep in our pocket to bring out to remind ourselves once in a while. The Bible tells us, for with God... Nothing will be impossible. Key phrase there, with God. With God, together with God, or if our lives are yoked and joined together with God, the Bible says nothing, nothing will be impossible. Maybe hard, but nothing will be impossible with God. Together with God, we can get through it. The Bible also tells us, flip over the other side of that wonderful coin, it also says this, that with God, all things are possible. 
So with God, nothing's impossible. That's great news. And with God, all things are possible. And what a wonderful truth. Simply the distinction is whether or not we are with God, whether our life is unified with God or whether we're shutting God out or resisting God or doing our own thing or whether we're walking in fellowship and having an encounter with God because an encounter with God is the key. That's the key initially for every human being, and it is the ongoing key and answer for all of us, even as believers, to keep having experience with God. Truly, that's our deepest need. Well, here's the good news. The letter of 1 John focuses on experiencing close and real relationship with God. It's about having a genuine encounter with God, what that looks like, and to encourage that to be going on. If you'd bear with me, let me give a few introductory thoughts to kind of help get the most out of our study in 1 John as we start a new book together. It sort of helps. And some books, it particularly helps all the more to have a little bit of a a backdrop. The author, of course, is John the Apostle. He was the brother of James. And he was one of the blessed 12 who got to be selected to be one of Jesus's disciples to walk and travel with him during his earthly life and ministry. He later also becomes divinely then authorized to be one of the apostles in the establishment of the early church. And John enjoyed close experience with Jesus in many different ways. The first being what I had already mentioned is that he was privileged to be called to be a follower of Jesus and he lived with and traveled around Israel with the person of our Lord Jesus Christ during his three-year ministry. So if you can imagine the things that he heard, the things that he saw, the wonderful things he had firsthand experience in spending three years journeying around with our Lord Jesus. That is all the things we read about in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. First-hand experience. John was actually experiencing those things firsthand as he traveled around with the Lord. The teachings, the miracles, all the things the Gospels record. And then add on to that, all the things the Gospels don't record. The little conversations at campfires. The things that would go on that the the Bible doesn't give us the full and complete record of everything that happened as they traveled with Jesus for those three years. So you can imagine the incredible things he experienced firsthand. Also, John was, remember, one of those who kind of became a part of what we kind of refer to as Jesus's inner circle. Remember, Peter, James and John, the Bible tells us in all four Gospels, these three men kind of became privileged to kind of become sort of a part of the inner circle of Jesus. Jesus had the 12, but then oftentimes he would privilege Peter, James, and John to experience some additional things. It's Peter, James, and John that got to witness certain miracles of Jesus that the other 12 didn't. When Jesus did his, uh, you know, uh, transfiguration, when he was transfigured in that glory and his glory radiated out of his person, it was Peter, James, and John who got to witness that firsthand. When Jesus was praying in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, he took with him Peter, James, and John. So John had this wonderful privilege of kind of being a part of that inner circle of Jesus, these three that he kind of drew, it seems, a little bit closer to him. Now, people always jokingly wonder, was that because they were privileged to have access or because they were the remedial bunch and they needed extra assistance? You can look at it however you want. Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, one way or the other, he got to experience certain things that others didn't, which built a deeper bond, no doubt, with Jesus. John also sensed a clear and loving affection of the Lord in a very obvious way, because when you read John's gospel, he calls himself specifically the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, I don't know if that irritated the other twelve. But that's how John referred to himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I think it's just an expression that he felt and sensed the love of Jesus in such a real and a personal way in his life. doesn't mean Jesus loved him more. In fact, I'm personally convinced that any good father will make all of his kids feel like they're the favorite. Like they're just really well loved. And John said, I just feel like I'm his favorite. I wouldn't tell the rest of the... Well, then he wrote it in his gospel. Oh, it's out there now. (laughs) 
But he, he just sends the love of Jesus that deeply. I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. I think Jesus wants us all to know his love in that way, to sense that he loves us. Remember, it's John who's at the Last Supper, we're told in his gospel as well. And it says that he's leaning back. Remember, against the chest of Jesus as they're reclined around that table. It's John who's leaning back against Jesus's chest and he's dialoguing with Jesus and he's hearing things and asking questions and hearing things from the Lord potentially that the others weren't initially. Lord, who is it's going to betray you? And, and he's having dialogue with Jesus. And I love that picture of John because here's John. He's close to the heart of the Lord. He's leaning against his chest. He's close to the heart of the Lord and he's hearing things from the Lord because of that, because he's close to the Lord's heart. And he's hearing things from Jesus. Remember, it was even John who gets blessed with the privilege to continue to take care of Jesus's earthly mother, Mary. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, it tells us that Jesus looks at John and Mary and he entrusts John with the care and the welfare of his earthly mother, Mary, as he was dying there on the cross. And John gets that privileged opportunity by jesus now at this stage when john is writing he's an aged apostle of the early church he's somewhere around 90 years old so as the holy spirit inspires john to take you know the the pen to the page to record these things understand this is a man who's somewhere at the latter stages of 90 plus or so years old which was incredibly old in that time period typically 40 50 you were tapping out and life was over in that time period. So John, at 90 years old, he has been walking in relationship with Jesus and serving the Lord since he was a teenager. Many believe John was about 15 to 17 when he was called to follow the Lord. So imagine how long he's been walking with Jesus in relationship. He is the sole survivor of all of those men who initially had close and direct contact with our Lord Jesus when he was living in the flesh, so he saw Jesus' earthly life, the ministry, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. And it seems now that he's kind of outlived all the others around the early church. And think about it, that means that John, at this point, if he's about 90 years old, he's already experienced about the first 50 plus years of the establishment of the early church from Pentecost on. So not only did he get to walk with Jesus, But he's experienced the operations of the first 50 years of the establishment of the New Testament church. And he's now this last man with initial connection to Jesus in the days of the flesh, in the early years of the church. And that's the perspective that John's writing from. This is the heart rooted spiritually deeply in things that now puts the pen to the page to talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, Specifically, we're told in John's gospel here four reasons why this letter was written. Sometimes New Testament letters, we study them and we say this is the theme or I think this is the theme verse. But there are other places in the Bible where the Holy Spirit specifically says this is the reason this letter was written. So we don't have to guess or act like we're better Bible students than others to pick it up. God just puts it there very candidly. And there are four reasons that we're told by reading 1 John why this letter was written. The first one is in our text this morning. If you look with me in verse 4, he says in chapter 1, verse 4, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So one of the reasons the Holy Spirit through John gave us this letter was to bring greater joy into our lives. Sounds like a good benefit and a reason to study 1 John that it will bring more joy, that as we study it and learn it, it can bring deeper joy into our lives. The second reason the Bible tells us that this particular letter was written, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, John says here, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. So another reason, a second reason this letter was written was to give power to overcome living in sin. Now, John's going to say it's not that we can ever become sinless or that we're going to achieve perfection on this side of eternity. We'll always struggle, but we want to do everything we can to yield to the resurrection power of Jesus and walk in victory over sin, and we should not be living in habitual sin, ongoing practice of sin and denying that. And so what a wonderful thing. 
If we want power and help to overcome sin in our lives, to overcome maybe some area of struggle with sin in our lives, this letter will bring that into our lives. A third reason we're told that we receive 1 John, if you look at chapter 2, verse 26, and there in chapter 2, verse 26, he says, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So a third purpose why we've received this letter from God is to give us discernment, to protect us from deception from erroneous teaching or wrong ideas spiritually to help us have discernment and keep us from being deceived. And then the fourth and final reason we're told this letter is written, if you go to the end of the book, chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13, he says there to us, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So a fourth reason that this letter was given is to give us assurance of eternal life to believers who are already Christians to assure us that indeed we are going to heaven to be confident of that, to be certain, to be assured in the depths of our soul. I know that I know that I am certain that I am going to experience eternal life that I'm certain that I'm saved, that there's no question, or for those who perhaps may not be certain, it will help them ascertain whether or not they can be sure if they're going to experience eternal life rather than eternal death and judgment. And John's going to talk about that as well. Some of what he'll describe in this is kind of, here's how you can tell if you are or aren't a believer to kind of sort out and self-examine your own heart. Now, look, we can trust the promise of God's word in relation to what I just described, these four reasons we're told that this letter is given to us because Isaiah 55 verse eight and nine tells us that God's word accomplishes what it's intended for or sent for. Isaiah 55 says this, for as the rain comes down from the snow of heaven and does not return there, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, God says, so shall my word that be goes, goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and prosper in the thing which I sent it. So when we study and we read First John, we can know that God's word is going to accomplish the purpose for which he, by his Holy Spirit, sent it to us through the the Apostle John. So we can know confidently as I go through this letter together, it's going to bring greater joy in my life. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. I'd like a little more of that. We can know that God is going to accomplish his purpose. It'll give us greater power to overcome living in sin. It will give us deeper discernment to protect us from spiritual deception, and it will give us greater assurance of eternal life. Now, as John begins these opening verses here, right away you can tell that he's addressing some of what was the problem, and he'll, see, he'll address this multiple times in the letter, and that is this, is that there were many perverse heresies circulating among the church at this time. A predominant heresy, and let me just briefly touch upon this before we jump into these verses, that was going on that you can really tell John is trying to combat was a heresy referred to as Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word that means knowledge or to know. And Gnosticism was basically a belief that it was able to obtain a higher knowledge or a deeper knowledge to, to somehow ascend to some degree of understanding, a gnosis, a higher knowledge that others did not have. They were those who were in the know. This deep mystical spiritual idea that there are some people who can reach a higher degree of super kind of secret knowledge and you can attain that and achieve that if you're willing to pursue the, the pathway of the Gnostics and Gnosticism. Now, the main idea, sadly, of this heresy Gnosticism was that life was all about the soul. Everything was spiritual, mystical in that way, and physical and material things were all corrupt, evil, and polluted. 
So the Gnostics believed that the soul was what mattered. Everything that was physical and material was so tainted and polluted, it had nothing to do with God. It did not even matter at all. Everything was just deeply spiritual. Therefore, God being good would in no way be involved with physical and material things of the created order. God is spirit, and therefore they taught basically the world is so corrupt that God would never involve himself in anything material. Well, of course, this led to problematic ideas, one of which believing that Jesus did not live in a human body, therefore. And so they denied the reality that Jesus took a physical human body in the flesh. They taught that Jesus was just sort of a phantom spirit. The spirit of Jesus, like a ghost, was among them. And that when Jesus walked, they would say there was no footprints or that the Christ spirit may have come upon this person, but then the Christ spirit departed and left off of him. And what they were doing was they were denying the incarnation, which is an essential doctrine to the Christian faith and to our salvation, the incarnation teaching that God literally took upon himself a second nature, a human nature, that God took upon himself a body of flesh and blood and lived and dwelt among humanity to overcome as a perfect man and provide reconciliation for humanity that is sinful and fallen back into relationship with God, right? The Bible tells us this very reality and that this is a fundamental doctrine of Christianity. And to deny that Jesus lived in a physical human body is to deny the incarnation and really to disrupt the whole teaching and truth of what's a major part of salvation. The scriptures teach us, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for example, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and it says the man, Christ Jesus. So this is absolutely essential that God became our savior, that God became a man to rescue mankind. That is what the word of God teaches, who Jesus was and what was necessary, that he came to live a sinless life on our behalf. And then he substitutionally died in our place, taking our punishment, rose again bodily, ascended back into heaven, and will one day return bodily back to this earth in his glorified, resurrected body. So they denied the incarnation, saying Jesus didn't come in a body. And the second problematic thing that came out of this Gnostic heresy was there were wrong views of how to handle the human body that people lived in. And really, two different camps kind of arose out of Gnosticism. They said, only the soul matters. The body is corrupt. Everything material and physical, God is not involved in that. It is corrupt and it's polluted. Two basic ideas arose out of that. One was asceticism, which is basically the complete denial of everything to do with the physical body. So the desires are corrupt. Everything in the body must be ignored. And so you should... Do everything you can to reject your bodily desires. Do everything you can to suppress every longing within you. And you need to neglect the body and torture the body and completely just disregard and, and, and live as a separatist. And do everything you can to just deny the body and all of its physical experiences because the body is completely corrupt and only the things of the soul matter. The other idea on the other camp that came out of Gnosticism was what we would call Epicureanism. And that was kind of the exact opposite. These were those who would say, because only the soul is what matters, as long as your soul is good on the inside, you can do whatever you want with your body. Because God's not involved in the body or the physical or material realm. God's only involved in the things that are soulish and spiritual. And your body and physical things are disconnected from the goodness of the human soul. So as long as you are encountering God in this deeper, higher gnosis, you can live however you want to live. You can indulge your bodily appetites to the full. You can have sex with whoever you want. You can pollute your body and do whatever you want to do. And it's all okay as long as your soul's good. You can imagine which one became more popular. And so it was basically just a perverse justification to indulge any form of sin, to live in sin. They'd say, well, it doesn't matter because your body doesn't matter. Just your soul matters. Just the things of the spirit matter. Well, again, that completely contradicts sound doctrine. 
right? Because God's word teaches that our physical body is the vessel God has given to us and that we are to glorify God, body, soul, and spirit. First Corinthians chapter six said this, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's both. So I put that out to you this morning because this is some of what John is wanting to refute to teach sound doctrine about Jesus and what it means to have a genuine experience with God. A real encounter with the God of light and a God of love and a God of life. So as he opens, he recounts here, notice some of his own firsthand experiences with Jesus from a place of great credibility to start refuting some of these horrible ideas. Notice with me back in verse one, John opens up by saying that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. The Greek literally is to look intently upon considering to make a decision. And our hands have handled, we've touched, concerning the word of life. So as John opens, he shares his firsthand experience with encountering the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says with absolute assurance, with great credibility, with certainty, the first thing he tells us in verse 1 is that Jesus, being eternal God himself, took indeed a human physical body at a point time in history. Notice he begins in verse 1 by saying there, that which was from the beginning. The idea is which existed from the beginning. Now, when he uses the word beginning there, he's not talking about the beginning of creation. That is physical creation, the heavens and the earth. When he says that which is from the beginning, here he's describing the beginning of time, whatever that was. The beginning of all things before people or the earth ever existed. From all the way back to that point when nothing existed but God himself, because God is the self-existent one. Right? What did the scriptures say to us about God? That he's the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. God doesn't just know the beginning and know the end. And, that, and I'm glad that he does know the beginning and know the end. The Bible says God is so awesome in his self-existent, omnipotent, omniscient, self that he himself is the beginning he was the beginning wherever the beginning was it was god and he is the end and he spans all of time and eternity we experience life a page at a time a chapter at a time right and, and that's the hard part we're stuck in this this time realm that's why the bible says the frustration we go through he says with the lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day and we're going Man, Lord, when is this ever going to happen? It's been so long. It's, Lord, it's been like a thousand years. And he goes, I'm, I know it feels like a thousand years to you, but I'm in the realm of eternity. It's been a day on my end. It's been a day. And God spans the beginning and the end. So he says here, that which was from the beginning, referring to God, who chose an appointed time to enter into the realm of earth to live among us as man. God humbly at a set point in time in history condescended and entered into a human body. And how did he do that? The very life of God, the son was miraculously deposited into the womb of a virgin woman who we know is the name Mary. And she conceived by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. As God placed the life of his son in the womb of this virgin woman so that she might give birth to him as a virgin. And Jesus might therefore have a divine father, God the father, and a human mother and therefore be able to be born the God man. To be born fully God and to be born fully human at the exact same time. Being born in that manner, he could be born without the inherent sin nature that comes from being born of Adam and Eve. And he also could then live out as a man, a human life, sinless to overcome sin's temptation in ways that we can't present to God a sinless life and then step into our place as a mediator to offer his sinless life to sacrifice as he died in our place. And John, I think, verse one here, being so mystified by this reality that God from the beginning stepped into time 
as a human being. John says here in verse one, that which was from the beginning, he says, he says, we've seen him with our own eyes. We, we've heard things that he would say to us. We, we touched him, John's saying. We embraced God. We interacted with him. John, referring to Jesus in his gospel as this same title, the word, said this in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and all things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. And the word, referring, of course, to Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld experienced, looked upon his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Colossians tells us as well in chapter 2, verse 9, that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, bodily. That God came and took upon himself a body in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, and he interacted with John and others, that God in the person of his son was living here on earth in a human body. And John says here in verse one, he says, we've, we've heard him firsthand. We heard his voice, John saying. He said things to us. We heard his teachings. We heard his voice when he called us and he said, follow me. And John says, when we heard his voice, it was unmistakable. That was no man alone. That was God. God was talking to us. God was on this earth teaching us, speaking things to us. It was powerful, John said. We heard it with our own ears. And he said, verse 1, we also seen him. Not only did we see him, he said, we looked intently upon him. The idea is we had three years to study him. We watched him. We looked at the way that he conducted himself, how he lived and ministered for three years. We were eyewitnesses to living with him, to watching his ministry. John says, we perceived this was no man. This was God living as a man. It was so evident, he says, as we looked upon him. And he says, verse one, and our hands handled him. The idea is we touched his body. John's saying, you're trying to say he has no body. We, we hugged a guy. We hugged him. Imagine John thinking, I hugged God. God hugged me. I I spent time with him. We shook hands. We we high-fived when something would go good. You know, it's 12, 13 guys traveling around. You know they high-fived once in a while. And John says, we experienced this. Even after his resurrection, Jesus said, what? Touch me. See, I'm not a ghost. I'm not a phantom. And even after the resurrection, with that resurrected, glorified body. In John 14, Jesus himself even declared the exact personal testimony of this reality. Remember when he was saying he was going to leave and depart and go back to the Father from where he came? The disciples were getting really upset and kind of scared by this reality that now, after three years, Jesus was going to leave and not be with them. And as they were talking to Jesus, as Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, that will be sufficient. What's he saying? If you just show God to us, show us God the Father, that will be sufficient. To which Jesus said this, have I been with you so long and yet you've not known me, Philip? Philip, you're saying show me the Father and then the Father through the very life of the Son says, Philip, how long have I been with you? You don't realize it's me? Jesus went on to say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe I am in the Father and the Father is me? Jesus wanted them to be clear and confident so they would be utterly convinced he was indeed God, right in their midst, making himself available in human flesh. Well, I think as I look at this, how amazing to think about how accessible God made himself to people. How accessible. You know, and yet there are human beings who think they're so special. Oh, I, I just, I'm sorry, I can't be accessible to you. I mean, you know who I am, right? I mean, you know what I do. Can't be accessible. God made himself completely accessible. He came and he made himself a man. And he made himself so accessible to people. So available to help and to walk with them. Look, that should be great encouragement to realize in your life. God wants to be accessible to you. 
He will offer you the greatest degree of intimacy you want. God's never going to say, we're getting a little too close now. Can we slow the relationship down? You're getting a little too close now. Never. God wants full accessibility. He makes himself available. He wants us to experience him. And John says, we saw him and touched him and heard him. It was eternal God. And understand, folks, Jesus had a body like we do because that was also necessary and purposeful. Certainly it was to reveal God and to provide redemption, but it was purposeful. Listen to what Hebrews 2 says. Since the children have flesh and blood, referring to us as the children of men, he too, regarding Jesus, shared in their humanity, it says, so that by his death as a human, we might, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. How interesting. The Bible says that there are people who are enslaved to the fear of death. Boy, that's so true. Just check around humanity a little bit. Enslaved, terrified to die. Utterly fearful, living in bondage, doing anything they can. I just can't die. And he says, Jesus came to help people get over that terror in their life to let them know there's something beyond the grave that's not to be feared through him. He says, surely it's not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and then make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered while he was tempted. The idea is in a body of flesh. He is now able to help those who are being tempted. See, all these wonderful reasons why it was crucial that Jesus be in a body of flesh, one of them being that as a man, he could defeat the power of the devil, defeat the power of death, and he could experience temptation. The Bible says he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, which means as a man, not as God, as a man, Jesus overcame every single temptation and didn't sin. He never failed when temptation came his way. That's great news because it says he can aid those of us who are being tempted, which means this. So as a human being, when you find yourself tempted, happens to me once in a while, may not be your struggle, but it does happen to me once in a while. And I feel like I can't overcome this temptation of this or that and whatever it may be, you can fill in all the dots to pick your poison of what it is. When you think you can't beat it, Jesus says to you, you can beat it. And here's how. Because I already defeated that. I faced that temptation and it didn't conquer me. So you can't conquer it, but with me, we can conquer it. I can show you how to overcome that because I overcame it. It doesn't have to defeat you. It doesn't have to enslave you. I will help you overcome it because I know how to beat it because I already did. And what a wonderful, wonderful reality. Jesus, John says, we saw him, we touched him. He says, verse one, concerning the word of Life, he calls Jesus here, the word of life. And that's that Greek word, logos, which speaks of the declaration of a message or the communication of thought. Jesus' existence on earth as a man was the declaration of God's message to mankind. His very person was the communication of the thoughts and mind of God, his explanation so that we could understand everything we need to know about God. Hebrews 1 tells us that. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Listen, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. See, the Bible teaches us that Jesus was God's ultimate sermon. Jesus was how God spoke to humanity. God said, I really want to speak to you. And God sent Jesus to be the way that he would convey to him, convey to us his declaration, the logos of life to show us everything that we need to know. Jesus was God's message to show mankind what God is truly like and what God's not like. So we want to know what God's like. We study the life of Jesus. The Bible tells us, Colossians 1, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So the life of Jesus, as we study the Gospels, shows us this is what God is like. And it also shows us this is what God's not like if you have wrong perceptions. What matters to him? What pleased him? What angered him? Jesus reveals to us what God was like, what God is like. 
And Jesus also was the message to declare what's necessary to experience God's salvation. Jesus was God's message to show us that we all need to be saved from our sinfulness. Why else would God send Jesus and let human beings spit on his son and mock his son and mistreat his son and punch his son and rip the beard out of his face and pierce him and crucify him in the most degrading, heinous way of capital punishment if there was just something you could do to get right with God? There's nothing we could do, right? That's why God subjected his son to that very thing, because it was necessary that the sinless son of God do this in mediation on our behalf to suffer those things for us, to rise from the dead and overcome. And Jesus declares to us how we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life through him. That's why Jesus said, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. So whoever believes on him won't perish, but have everlasting life. And he is the word, the logos, John says, of life. That is the fullness of life. That word speaks of, of the absolute highest form of life. That is not just physical life, but abundant eternal life. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 10, I have come that they may have life and that more abundantly or fully. So Jesus declared the absolute highest form of life to have experience with God to experience spiritual life and eternal life in the deepest form, we experience that through Jesus. John says, verse 2, that life was manifested and we've seen and bear witness. We're, we're, we're eyewitnesses and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, he says, and then was manifested to us. So again, notice John's reiterating in, in this firsthand sense, we are witness to this truth. And he says, we're just declaring to you like firsthand witnesses of an auto accident or a firsthand witness to a murder scene or a firsthand witness to some wonderful event. We're firsthand eyewitnesses telling you, he says, that you may know and experience this same life that we're experiencing. And what kind of life was it? John says, it's eternal life. He says the life, verse 2, we're declaring to you is that eternal life that was with the Father and was manifested or revealed, he says, to us. Notice he calls Jesus here in verse 2 by this title. He's calling Jesus that eternal life which was with the Father. That's another title he gives to Jesus, that eternal life that was with the Father and then manifested to us, indicating Jesus' life was what? Eternal. It was pre-existent. He is the self-existent God together with God the Father and God the Spirit. This speaks of the pre-existent one, God the Son, who existed in the beginning prior to all other things, even as God the Father and God the Spirit. Two times we are told here that Jesus came in verse 2 to manifest himself, that is to present himself for the purposes of revelation, to provide redemption, and also to free us from Satan's power over our lives spiritually. John's going to say in chapter 3 of our letter, 1 John 3, 8, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Why? That he might destroy the works of the devil. I don't want to preach on that verse this morning, but I've always loved that verse. I pray that lots of times. I remember that lots of times. Lord, one of the main reasons you were manifested was to destroy the works of the devil. So, Lord, let, let, let's do that. Lord, where the devil's working, let's just bust that up and destroy that. And you were manifested, not once universally and generically, but Lord, you came to destroy, to defeat all the works of the devil. And what a wonderful assurance that this is one of the reasons Jesus manifested himself to show his authority as the eternal one who came and revealed himself. Again, understand, as it says here, Jesus manifested himself as the eternal life. Jesus's earthly life as a man, and always recall this, Jesus' earthly life as a man was just the beginning of his human life. A lot of times we think about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. That was the beginning of his life. That was the beginning of his life as a man. It was the beginning of his life as a human. He's the pre-existent God. He was always alive in eternity forever, but at a set point in time in human history, Jesus, the eternal life who had been with the Father from the beginning, entered into this realm and began his human life to live out his human existence 
to accomplish the things that he came to do, but he is the one who possesses eternal life. That's why Jesus is the only one who can give to anyone eternal life, because he is eternal life. Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life that they never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. What a wonderful thing. Jesus says, do you want eternal life? You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You can't arrive. Jesus says, I give eternal life. Why? Because he is eternal life personified. He is the embodiment of eternal life. So Jesus is the only one who can give as a gift, the gift of God, which is eternal life. John's going to talk about this more when we get to chapter five, that Jesus is that giver of his own eternal life. Verse three, he says, and that which we have seen and heard again, John says, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. Notice John keeps emphasizing, we are sharing confidently what we ourselves have experienced. He says, verse three, that you also, in other words, John's saying, we just want you to experience what we've experienced with him. And it's available to all. He says that you also, like all of us, could experience this same fellowship, reminding us that Jesus came to allow or enable us to have this fellowship or experience with God. That word fellowship, you notice verse three, again, two times it shows up in our verse. That word fellowship is our Greek word koinonia. And it's a word that speaks of a shared experience or a partnership. A lot of times as Christians, we say, hey, on Sunday morning before Easter, come at 8.30, we're gonna have breakfast burritos and we're gonna fellowship. It's kind of a Christian term, right? We fellowship. And a lot of, we understand what we mean by that is we're gonna hang out, we're gonna talk, we're gonna spend time together. But biblically, the word fellowship, translated fellowship in the New Testament, means something much deeper than just social interaction. See, you can spend time with somebody in social interaction, but that may not necessarily be biblical koinonia or fellowship. Certainly the social part is a, a, a component of it. But fellowship, koinonia in the Greek, biblically, is about a shared experience. It speaks of joint partnership, where people do things together and they partake of the same things and they share things together and they do things together in partnership. It's much deeper than just social interaction. And John says here, we want you to be fellowship and partake together with us with what we're partnering and partaking of spiritually. And where was this fellowship available? Well, in two forms. John says, here's the first primary thing about fellowship. He says, look at the end of verse three. He says, our fellowship, our partnership, partaking and koinonia, he says, it's with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So John says, this is what I want you to know first and foremost. I want you to have fellowship with God. Fellowship with his son, Jesus. What an amazing thing that because of what Jesus did, we can have that, right? As sinful people, as sinful people and who we are through the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness Jesus gives to us and the spirit God imparts to us, we can have an shared encounter with God. We can have a partnership with God for with God, all things are possible. And with God, nothing will be impossible. That's available because of what God did for us through Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1, 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into this fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a beautiful thing to consider. And John says here, this is who our fellowship is with, the father and his son, that through Jesus and what he's done for us, we don't have to just be religious people. We're not talking about a religious routine. I go to church once in a while, I do a few rituals, I do a few you know, r religious checklist things I do. God wants something much, much deeper than that. God wants real relationship. God makes available his very person and wants us to participate in life with him. He wants to participate in your life and be a part of your everyday experience to partner in life with you, to help you in everything you're going through, to guide you to, so that you don't have to do life alone, right? To understand as a Christian, it really, as a Christian, is kind of a contradiction of the terms to say, I'm so alone. You may feel alone, but if you're a Christian, you can't be alone 
You genuinely can because God is with you. His spirit is with you. And perhaps the struggle of loneliness is, Lord, help me to sense your presence more. Lord, I want to participate in life with you more. I need you to partner in life with me more. Lord, I want your presence to guide me, to help me, to assist me. And through Jesus, not only do we get fellowship with God, but we also, he says, get to have fellowship. John says, have fellowship with us, verse 3. That is fellowship with other Christians. And isn't it wonderful? Not only do we get the blessing of a relationship with God, but one of the things we get as a part of coming to Jesus is this right here. Relationship with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow children of God, the family of God, the church family. This is the best dysfunctional family going fantastic i love it is there dysfunction amen yes there is but it is the best dysfunctional family going eternal family where bonds many times are much deeper and richer than sometimes even our biological family some of us have lost connection with our biological family or maybe not have the greatest experience with our biological family but god gives you eternal brothers and sisters who you do life with you don't just do social club with them this isn't the elks club this is the church. We have fellowship. We partner together. We share life together. Burdens and hardships and blessings and joys. And we partner and partake of things together. And we do life together because we're eternally bonded through the Father and through his son, Jesus. John concludes verse 4 in our section this morning saying, And these things we write to you, why, as we said, that your joy may be full. That is that John says, we're writing these things so that you can have the fullest degree of joy, a greater degree of joy. And as we said before, joy is different than happiness. Happiness is based upon what's happening. So happiness can come and happiness can go depending upon what happens. Joy is that supernatural inward sense of gladness that can remain in your soul because it's a part of the fruit of the spirit of experiencing relationship with God. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. You know, what joy there is in knowing that all these things that we believe about Jesus are true. What joy there is, no matter what's going on in your life, to say, I know it's well with my soul. I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. We're going to heaven. We're going to reunite with people who've gone to heaven. What a wonderful joy to be able to experience that, to have an encounter with God on a daily basis, to have an internal gladness and contentment and peace, even in the hardships of life, that joy of the Lord's spirit. Look, this morning, if you find yourself struggling with joy, maybe you're down. Maybe you're depressed. Maybe you're discouraged. Can I say to you, the source of inner gladness, please hear me, it's not trying this or indulging that or popping a pill. It's having an experience with God and letting the joy of the Lord 